Greetings, friends, comrades, citizens, proletarians of every persuasion, and homo sapiens everywhere. You are listening to Democracy or Die, a force for authentic democracy, as it was understood by those humans who actually coined the word long ago and far away, not as a swamp of corruption, intrigue, and deceit, but an orderly, impartial, transparent process in which every citizen has an equal voice and money is irrelevant. And I'm your host, instigator, fellow traveler, and collaborator, Paul Rosenfeld, the diminutive and graying Spartacus of the wage slaves, a worker determined to live in an authentic democracy or die trying. Before we continue, I'd just like to make one thing very clear. None of the unpleasantness I've endured is because I ever threatened the safety of my fellow citizens. I haven't. This was a fiction created by ambitious government employees who wished to advance their careers by prosecuting terrorism. My only real crime is that I refuse to continue living without protest under a system of government where power is deliberately awarded to whatever individual or organization has the most money to spend and the fewest moral scruples regarding how that money is used. This stubbornness turned me into a convenient target. There's no such thing as a free election. It costs millions to win even a local contest and the mere possession of money does not make a person qualified to hold office. Typically, it's quite the opposite. The person who's acquired great wealth has often done so by lying, stealing, and cheating. And now we're going to reward this behavior by giving them even more power? I'm sorry I disagree with this. There are better ways to choose a government involving procedures and principles that were once labeled democratic back when this word still had some meaning. As a worker, I've endured over four decades under this faux democracy and have very little to show for it. I wake each morning at 4.30 and 12 hours later return home utterly spent, both physically and emotionally. The bank owns my house. I have no retirement savings and my body is falling apart at an exponential rate. If I was a horse, I'd be on the way to the glue factory by now. Determined to make a stand while I was still able, I planned a dramatic act of civil disobedience, knowing with absolute certainty that this was the only way my voice would ever be heard. All I seek as a political system where ordinary citizens may stand for office and have a chance equal to that of party-endorsed candidates. I'm calling this idea public service candidacy and would describe it as jury duty for elective office. Let the voters have a third choice, not Democratic, not Republican, but an ordinary unaligned citizen whose only qualification is the willingness to take a civil service examination, demonstrating their rough familiarity with general concepts 
of history, law, economics, and government. Partisan politics will be the death of us. Let us choose ordinary informed citizens instead of politicians. This is all I wish. My plans were cautiously and responsibly made. Public safety was always my top priority. I divulged my intentions to a journalist, anticipating that every aspect of the venture would ultimately be scrutinized and that the details would support this assertion. I did not expect this member of the press to rat me out because I foolishly harbored certain romantic fantasies about the responsibility of the fourth estate to foster free speech. A real journalist doesn't give up a confidential source, or so I imagined. Once I was handed over to the federal government and safely ensconced in a dungeon, the FBI and federal prosecutor had complete freedom to fabricate an alternate narrative in which I was a deranged, dangerous, and hateful person. They disseminated the vilest lies and I was powerless to defend myself. These falsehoods stood unchallenged for a year, and by the time I was released, no one was at all interested in my version of events. The truth was already well established, but I digress. My first days in solitary at Valhalla are a complete blank. No surprise there. In cases of trauma, people dissociate. Alone in a dark, windowless cell, time and space cease to exist, and objective reality becomes a tenuous notion at best. If you weren't mad when you went in, you'll likely end up there soon enough. Periodically, some inedible slop was pushed through a hole in the door. But aside from this, there was no reference at all to any world beyond my immediate misery. I remembered just about nothing. But, looking out the window of the cell door, I would occasionally see guards in riot gear attending to my neighbors. Yes, that's right. I was on the unit where they keep the most dangerous and violent prisoners. Just to be quite clear, I'm almost 60 years old, 150 pounds soaking wet, and I haven't had a fight since grade school. But I'm sure the Justice Department's description of me as a dangerous terrorist led the warden to make a cautious decision. In the name of safety, our government makes all kinds of reasonable decisions. We also assassinate people by remote control on the opposite side of the planet without any semblance of due process. And maintain a stockpile of thermonuclear weapons sufficient to exterminate all life on Earth many times over. But, of course, I'm the dangerous crazy person. Several days or weeks later, really, how would I know, my public defender made an intervention, and I was moved to a different unit where they keep less dangerous criminals. Now some semblance of reality returns. The unit has many cells opening onto a common area with some minimal furnishings. There are several televisions, but, of course, nothing in the way of reading material. I am now 
first introduced to the phenomenon, not uncommon I've discovered, of inmates watching reality television about crime and criminals. The show du jour concerns the ever-popular subject of prison breaks, and there is much lively banter regarding the merits and shortcomings of the tactics and techniques portrayed. When the escapees are at last recaptured, it's widely agreed by the assembled company that they had it coming. Do doctors watch Grey's Anatomy? Do lawyers watch The Good Fight? I am certain that many U.S. Marshals watch 24. Why else would they all seem to think they're Jack Bauer? I suppose we're all looking for validation and role models, and our disjointed culture has left us so lacking in identity that we seek it in the twisted mirror of television. The parts we play may be sick, but the Hollywood stamp of approval makes it all okay. The Nuremberg Nazis were only following orders, and Americans in the 21st century America are only living as they learned how on TV. Eventually, there may be a reckoning, I think. Kevin had grown up on a rural compound with a great many guns and a tremendous amount of right-wing radio. His father, a former Marine well-known to local law enforcement, would patrol the boundaries of his acreage in full combat dress and threaten or abduct anyone who got too close. Otherwise, he divided his time between terrifying the kids and tearing up the local watering holes. Mom was long gone. Now, in an environment like this, is it any surprise if Kevin inherited some of his father's confrontational tendencies? And yet, I spoke with him for hours, and I really doubt his online threats were serious. For his entire young life, Kevin had been witness to an ongoing media brawl, otherwise known as the culture war, and one can hardly blame him if he happened to chip in with a few choice comments of his own. But because he had no press manager to censor his remarks, Kevin stepped a little over that oh-so-delicate line where free speech ends and hate speech or intimidation begin. And so we see how the Internet has initiated the era of thought crime. In a prior age, Kevin's comments, made in private among like minds, would simply have gone unnoticed. In the bygone era of the 20th century, these remarks would likely have dissipated like farts without causing any harm whatsoever. But today, with Big Brother pouring over our every online remark, the more or less innocent bit of vitriol is quickly elevated to the status of a felony. If that isn't thought crime, what is? Look, I'm not endorsing such behavior, but is it really reasonable to lock up a citizen simply because they vent a little online? And if the target for so much of this malice is inevitably the members of our political elite, well then, isn't there a clear message here? I also briefly rubbed elbows with my fellow inmates as we participated in the farce of a quasi-religious group rehabilitation, 
conducted jointly under the auspices of a Greek Orthodox priest and a rabbi. I expect business on the outside is tough, but pioneering clergymen will always find a truly captive audience among the incarcerated. My fellow prisoners and I sat in a large circle before these men with their quaint costumes, and those who were sufficiently moved recounted their tragic tales of drug-related downfall and hopeful redemption, all under the watchful gaze not only of the two holy men, but also the prison psychologist. The prisoners performed their parts on cue, but I wasn't convinced. I'm pretty sure they'll each fall again, just as soon as they have the opportunity. And why shouldn't they? Let's bypass the cheap moralizing. People take drugs because their lives are intolerable, and they sell them because well-paid manufacturing work is non-existent these days. These people are victims, not criminals. Their only real offense is not having sufficient political clout to become legit. The medication cart visits the unit twice a day and dispenses legal drugs to most of the inmates, including my own 40 milligrams of Prozac. These drugs are produced by a respectable cartel which makes contributions to both major political parties. As a result, their corporate officers never do time, no matter how many Americans die with their product in their veins. They will occasionally pay some modest fines, however. It's the cost of doing business. For 10 years, I worked in a Fifth Avenue department store, spraying mannequins and painting display windows, servicing the convergence of New York vanity and Asian slave labor. It was a pathetic job, so I used to start every day with a little dose of THC. This made my time marginally more bearable. My wife's a psychiatrist, and she freely admits psychopharmacology has a major component of guesswork. But when she prescribes, it's legal. And when I self-prescribe, it's a felony. In prison, Marijuana is hard to come by, and inmates are forced to improvise. Insecticides and industrial solvents are among the materials routinely employed in the desperate struggle to evade reality. At my last stop in the prison system, yard work was a coveted assignment because the wasp spray offered a much sought-after high. Today, a free man, I paint multi-million dollar apartments on Manhattan's fashionable. I didn't get to know many of my new peers. I wasn't around very long. Valhalla Prison was just a way station for me. I did, however, make the acquaintance of my immediate neighbor in the adjacent cell. Kevin was a young kid from the sticks who'd made some unfortunate remarks on the internet statements calling into question the future health and well-being of an elected official whose positions didn't quite mesh with Kevin's own views on the subject of political economy. A little too far to the left of Kevin's patriotic free market views, undoubtedly cultivated without his knowledge by the Koch brothers, 
The threatened victim of Kevin's venom could now rest safely because the feds had snatched him up and they weren't likely to be letting him go anytime soon. Hudson Shoreline. But I no longer toke up in the morning because my employer and probation officer both have the power to make me piss in a cup whenever they please. It sometimes seems that prison inmates may actually have more freedom than wage slaves. For those of us on the bottom rungs of society, the whole world sometimes seems like one giant prison. No wonder many are willing to take a few risks on the off chance they may climb a little. I didn't last long at Valhalla, not long enough to get rehabilitated anyhow. I had other plans. My public defender had informed me that I could expect to spend 10 to 20 years behind bars. And since I had no intention of doing this, I was forced to adopt Plan B. I started tearing up my bedsheet into thin strips, which I was slowly braiding into a rope. There was a ventilation grill on the wall above the toilet, which seemed quite sturdy enough to support my weight. Not my first choice for a final exit, but one does what one must. Judge me if you wish. I freely confess to being weak. But until you've been arrested, thrown in prison, labeled a terrorist, and threatened with 20 years, you really won't appreciate the colossal mindfuck which the twisted sociopaths at the Department of Justice can inflict on a person. I engaged in some highly committed political activism and even accepted death as a possible outcome. But I wasn't truly suicidal until the feds got their hands on me. I love my children, wife, and dogs, not to mention skiing, sailing, and walks on the beach. And I'd like very much to live to a ripe old age in the country. But when those criminal conspirators at the DOJ and their equally contemptuous Confederates in the fourth estate get their claws into a citizen, all joy leaves the world. And if you're already old and tired like me, death appears a mercy. I know you may not sympathize and say I brought all this pain on myself through my extreme actions. So by way of furnishing some context for my so-called crime, let's forget my situation and consider the example of Marcin Kowalski, one of my cellmates from the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. We're skipping ahead a little now since I haven't actually reached MDC yet. But Marson's tale is thoroughly illustrative of how a perfectly respectable person can have their life utterly ruined by the state and federal government. You may say that I'm a dubious character, but I defy you to say the same of Marson. Handsome and outgoing, Marson is a first-generation immigrant whose father, a Polish merchant sailor, jumped ship in the 80s, making a new home in Greenpoint. Fond of telling his son that America is golden cow, you have only to milk her. Dad's version of dairy farming apparently involved the use of garden shears for the removal of digits from reluctant debtors. But young Marson, while still a teenager, escaped 
the dubious example of his gangsterish dad, and left the familiar haunts of little Poland to explore America. He traveled widely, mostly by thumb, and wound up living among harmless homesteading hippies on the West Coast, first in Northern California, and ultimately settling on his own plot of land in Olympia, Washington, as far from Brooklyn as you can possibly get. In Olympia, he grew cauliflower and cannabis, both of which are legal, and dated a great many of the girls from the notoriously bohemian Evergreen State College, ultimately finding one so compelling that they've been together ever since. Although several years of this romance have now been spent in separate prisons. Not that either of these star-crossed lovers did anything to deserve the trials and tribulations they've endured. Allow me to elaborate. Yes, Marson sold marijuana. Not a crime in Washington. And, since he grew it himself, you can't accuse him of being some kind of trafficker or middleman. No, he was just a farmer bringing his crop to market. Marson also carried a concealed handgun, legal and registered. A good idea when you're wholesaling by the pound. I met several people in prison who admitted to specializing in robbing drug dealers. And a businessman who doesn't prepare for this possibility is probably not much of a businessman. And Marson, hippie or not, came from a background where handguns were no oddity. And though he's far more a lover than a fighter, he's also no sissy. So, one fine day, Marson encounters some foolish customers who imagine their dealer is ripe to be robbed. And one guy has him in a headlock while the second pulls a knife. And things are looking grim, so Marson does what he had to. Pulls the concealed weapon out of his pocket and makes a desperate and wild shot. Fortunately, my Polish-American friend was unharmed, but his assailants were injured and incapacitated. And from this moment on, Marson was utterly fucked, no matter what he did, because there was blood in the water. And in our country, the sharks, otherwise known as public prosecutors, will go on a feeding frenzy, no matter how that blood got there. Surely the investigating local police could see that it was a simple matter of self-defense. And if charges were indeed warranted, the rightful recipients were in the hospital. But this was irrelevant. You don't reason with a shark, and the attempted murder charges against Marson were immediate. Understandably, Marson chose to delay the moment of reckoning, so he and his woman hitchhiked cross-country back to Greenpoint, where he knew he'd find some cover and support. And there he was able to blend in for several years under the radar, paying cash, avoiding cell phones, and working off the books for various small construction contractors. But the federal government never forgets. And one fateful morning, the marshals raided his apartment under cover of darkness, and Marson and his woman were both carted off to separate New York prisons. And then the Empire State graciously held the couple while Washington State twiddled its thumbs and did pretty much nothing, probably because the prosecutor knew he didn't really have a case.
At this point, the tabloids got involved because, of course, the feds love to display their trophies. I know all about this. Now, Marson and his woman, neither of whom had any criminal history, but are both very photogenic, were transformed by Rupert Murdoch into Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, that's right. Public enemies far greater even than the original Barrow gang. Yes, they were all over the front page with their cross-country crime spree. Now, I suppose it's better to be a gangster than a terrorist. Americans seem to like gangsters. But my young friends will now have to bear the burden of this absurd stigma for the rest of their lives. No careers in education, law, or government service for them. In fact, I think they can forget about any kind of respectable employment whatsoever. When I met Marson, he'd already been in New York prisons for three years and was only now finally being transported back to Washington, where it appeared that a new prosecutor was probably going to drop most of the original charges, because there was, in fact, no case that would hold up in front of a jury. By now, two years later, it's possible my friends may even be free. Only slight the worse for wear, having lost four or five years of their young lives and being slandered most absurdly in the national news. They're still young and strong, and I believe they'll recover from this trauma. After all, they have each other. But their case is perfectly typical, and not everyone will bounce back from this sort of treatment. My immediate neighbors on the suburban cul-de-sac where I live still hide when they see me. They had only moved into their home a few weeks before I was arrested, and their entire picture of me was formed by the news media. They know I'm a twisted monster because they saw it on Fox News. If you're already suffering from depression, like me, this sort of thing can just about push you over the edge. I could furnish many other examples of decent people whose lives were ruined by the lies of law enforcement and the rapaciousness of prosecutors. But the list is just too long. Please take my word for it. Yes, there are legitimately bad people in prison. Child molesters, rapists, armed robbers, and such. But these creatures are a minority. The average inmate is just a decent person trying to get by whose only real crime is typically having the wrong skin color or zip code. Some will win their freedom and bounce back, no doubt, but for many, prisons are an inevitable final resting place, a purgatory sandwiched between the tenuous hopes of a brief doomed childhood and the ultimate destination of a bargain basement cremation. Marson's tale is far less common than that of Baltimore Bob, an ancient member of the Bloods, who asked me to complete a form on his behalf one day. At first, I imagined Bob to be illiterate, but then he showed me his misshapen index finger with a bullet fragment lodged right under the tip. Writing isn't impossible for Bob, and he certainly knows how. It's just very painful and extremely difficult. He also showed me his various other gunshot wounds as well, and I soon lost count. Bob is my age, but next to my well-preserved white carcass, his looks like dark Swiss cheese. Bob, 54, 
admits to being a dinosaur, and says that all the guys he came up with are dead now. As awful as prison may be, it's generally safer than life on the street. There are millions of guys like Bob and his prematurely deceased companions, and I refuse to believe they might not have had very different lives, given the opportunity. Our civilization worships a false god known as economic profit, without any regard for the human cost of this obsession. My desperate protest against this insanity led me to prison, and that is perfectly appropriate, because this is where the most acute victims of our collective madness generally end up. Here, suicide is common, and my failed efforts in this direction were an entirely normal occurrence for the new fish. Judge me if you wish. Again, I do confess to being extremely tired and weak. But you must also question how it is that many thousands of citizens, young and healthy for the most part, end up bleeding out on a shower floor or swinging from a sprinkler pipe each year. The system which generates this inconceivable misery was created by our elected representatives. Could there be any greater indictment of our system of government? Going to prison has only hardened my political views. Martin Luther King was a thousand percent right. No one is free until we are all free. Yes, all this is somewhat tangential to the main thrust of my narrative. I am easily distracted, it seems. For me, all roads lead not to Rome, but to the utter evil of our government. But I'll try to rein my passions in and simply tell the story of my brief passage through one corner of this hell on earth paid for by your tax dollars. One of the guards, far more observant than I realized, had spied my surreptitious weaving and confiscated my unfinished craft project before I had the opportunity to use this rope for its intended purpose. The larger implications of this discovery were as yet unknown to me. The immediate consequence was simply that I now had my own personal 24-hour guard. Still in the same cell, but now separated from the rest of the common area, I sat in an isolated corner outside my cell and read a well-worn Star Trek novel in which the Enterprise has been dispatched to rescue a doomed planet. It was the only piece of reading material on the entire unit, so far as I could tell. It wasn't easy without reading glasses, but under the circumstances I was quite desperate for distraction. There were no other books to be had, nor was I able to obtain either paper or pencil for many weeks not to mention a toothbrush or a toothpaste. Prisons like a desert island in this respect, or a war-torn third world nation, even the most basic commodities are often difficult or impossible to come by. Even toilet paper may sometimes become a luxury. So I held this well-worn pulp offering at arm's length and made the best of it. The ill-fated planet, which was the object of the Enterprise's efforts, was about to be consumed by a supernova. 
the human colonists of this distant world had knowledge sufficient to anticipate the imminent explosion of their sun, but no means of escape, at least not for most. The wealthy, many of whom possessed private spacecraft, were leaving in droves, but the common citizens were helpless. Typical, no? The end was expected within days or perhaps weeks, but the Enterprise could only evacuate a handful of those less fortunate citizens in this brief period of time. For many, suicide appeared the best option. Sound familiar? Tantalizingly, it appeared to some scholars on the planet that an ancient technology left by the prior non-human inhabitants, now long gone, might hold a key to actually averting the supernova, but their understanding of the ancient alien language and tools was insufficient to the task at hand. Fortunately, however, with Kirk, Spock, and Scotty on the scene, none of these esoteric ideas would be required. Our starship saviors can't avert the impending supernova, but they do manage a high-tech solution of sorts, using the Enterprise's warp drive to somehow channel the energy of the expanding star in order to create a black hole which swallows the planet just in the nick of time and deposits it perfectly in a new orbit around a stable star some light years distant. Ah, what are we sad inhabitants of a doomed Earth to do? With Spock and Scotty both dead, and Kirk reduced to hawking garbage on late-night television, we can expect no such miracles here. But what about this idea of ancient forgotten knowledge as an antidote to modern distress? I would dare to suggest that we may have our own version of such a solution waiting in the wings, if only we'd have the vision to recognize it. Human society not unlike a supernova, seems intent on a fiery and dramatic end. Torn asunder by the conflict between our base animal nature and the profound godlike powers we've so recently acquired, our species seems slated for an early exit from this earthly stage to be remembered, like the dinosaurs, as an outsized, doomed actor, histrionic and short-lived. But there was at least one ancient human city, Athens, where the inhabitants discovered a means of balancing the greatness of our dangerous striving with the more common concerns of simply getting by. The record of their unique political institutions exists primarily in a dead language, and most scholars have paid far more attention to their literature than to the nuts and bolts of Athenian government. No doubt there's far more entertainment value in the stories they told, and a government which actually works, as theirs apparently did, is actually quite boring. When the citizens are content, they don't riot on the forum or in the assembly, they simply live their lives. So humor me for just a moment, if you will, and let's ever so briefly consider those institutions. In an age when monarchs reigned supreme and many, like the Egyptians, had been elevated to the status of gods, 
The Athenians adopted the simple but radical notion that each man, no matter how common, should hold power on a level equal with all others. The government of that fair city, home to so much of our cultural heritage, was run by a rotating cast of ordinary citizens. Their Council of 500, the executive body of Athens, was composed of average Athenians selected by lot, much as we choose jurors today. The citizen of noble birth or great wealth was neither elevated or punished. They held power exactly equal to that of their less illustrious peers. They called this novelty democracy and liked it so well they dedicated a goddess in its name. Today, we continue to use this name and pretend to revere it, but our definition of the word bears little relation to the ancient Athenian understanding. I have dedicated my life to the resurrection of that original, authentic, and more honest understanding of the word. This position has caused me some difficulty. Well, that's all for now, folks. I hope you'll tune in again soon as we leave Valhalla Prison and travel to the Federal Courthouse in Manhattan and then on to the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. I know everybody seemingly wants to live in Brooklyn these days, but after spending the best part of a year there, I'd be quite fine if I never crossed that bridge again. <laughs>